Let's uh, open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the day today. We pray that you will um, use this message, if possible, to encourage us that we live in times that you that were prophesied to us thousands of years ago. We would pray that we would be encouraged that what we see is the beginning of the fulfillment of these prophecies. Bless our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've titled to this today, uh, this, this is a hot mess. Uh, I try to collect things as I go through the week. And early in the week I had, I thought, boy, I've, this is just great. I'm going to edit it Monday, and I'll have everything ready to go. So at uh, 5 a.m. this morning, I finally got to it uh, because there was just so much other stuff that I kept clipping, and I take pictures of stuff with my phone because I, oh, I want to talk about that. And then I end up that there's just too much. I was commenting to someone this week that it seems like a few years go by from one Sunday to the next now. And I don't think that that's an invalid feeling that I'm getting because the world is, it's a hot mess. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Again, this is what we should expect. We should expect that as we get closer to the end that these things that the Bible prophesies will happen are going to happen in a more, they're going to happen more quickly, faster. There will be a certain velocity to these things. If I'm a mile away from a target and I'm going 100 miles an hour, a sign, doesn't seem to change that much, but if I'm 10 feet away, things go by pretty quickly. It is, uh, so as we, and especially the other thing we see is we see this convergence of things. And as I've said many times before, as these things converge, it almost creates like a vortex, like a tornado. Um, and you don't want to be, you know, it's not a very comfortable position to be in because things are very turbulent. But God is good, God is gracious, and he'll see us through all these things. But it is a very disrupted world. Um, again, I post this stuff at uh, Remnant Truth Network, rtntv.org. We are going to try to do a live Q&A yesterday, but for some unforeseen circumstances, we were going to have to reschedule that. So one of the things we hope to do is do some live little teachings and Q&A sessions where people can submit questions um, and, and we'll hopefully we'll be able to address what people are really concerned about. So again, as we <coughs> approach this period of time um, known as the 70th week, we know that there's this thing coming, the abomination of desolation. And as we get close, when that happens, Jesus says, then shall be great tribulation, such as never was, nor ever shall be. So if you think it's crazy now, just wait. As we refer to a lot to 2 Timothy chapter 3, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. If you want a, a little example of that, I, I talked on James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 in the first hour this morning. The title of that was The Evils of Favoritism and the Woke Gospel. And the problems of changing, well, introducing a new religion called wokeness that is running rampant through our culture. And we know that this will happen in the church, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, says this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And I talked about how scripture is sufficient. So let's take um, 
a look at some of the things that are going on that play into some of these different themes of Bible prophecy. The days of Noah, the days of Lot, conditions that Jesus and other prophets said would exist as we got closer to the end. And I think we see a lot of these. Uh, I will say again, I think that the next 90 days, uh, here in the U.S. especially, are going to be rather turbulent. Now, I pray that it's not, but all indications are that it will be. And I don't even have time to talk about everything, so because there's just too much. This is an interesting article. This year has seen a record number of climate disasters costing $1 billion. Does it seem like something's going on with the weather? And these things happen in these, they happen in groups now, in twos or threes. So New Mexico, or Mexico, they're, you know, they're immersed in this gang violence and that type of thing. Their culture's falling apart. Lawlessness reigns. And then they get hit by a meteor. Or they get hit by a, a hurricane. And then a meteor. The same time. And it causes, it hits, it actually causes some fires. So it's like, I just don't remember this type of stuff happening in my lifetime. Now there is this is this is probably the good news. Uh, talked about what's going on with the National Health Service in the UK and the um, transgender conversion therapy that really sounds like it's almost being forced on children. There are a number of articles today in the British press or over this week in the British press. They're having a court hearing. They told the high court in England that, listen, they, this stuff is being forced on children as young as hormones to stop puberty is being given to children as young as 10 years old. And I'm grateful that there are people that are taking up the fight. Um, it it's time that somebody put a stop to the evil that's behind this. I, I just can't believe that people would even support this. You know, I suppose it's one thing if somebody's a, an adult and they want to mess up their body, but 10-year-olds? By the way, I, what, anybody remember what state it was that indicted Netflix? Texas, a court in Texas, uh, over that uh, hypersexualized, they, they claim, well, we're, we're, we're doing a documentary about children are sexualized, so we're going to show you the sexualization of children to show you that it's bad. Like, we didn't know that. So I'm glad somebody stood up and said something about this. So this whole transgender, marriage, all of these things, this is, listen, this is what's going to happen. As we said in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, it says when Lot and Sodom saw what was going on around him, he felt oppressed. And I said, look, if, if you don't look around and watch what's going on and feel that kind of oppression, you really need to check your heart because it should bother you. And I'm grateful that people are standing up. But it's, truth is being opposed at every level. This is a, a um, ministry called Restored Hope Network. And you can see that they're verse that they are, and such were some of you. They counsel people who are struggling with transgender, gender identity, uh, same-sex attraction and that type of thing, and they try to counsel them in a biblical fashion. Apparently, this is very dangerous. Facebook removed their page this week with no explanation. The lack of an explanation is all you need to know about Facebook. So that's why we set up Remnant Truth Network and, and others are doing the same thing because we know that Time on social media is 
probably not something that's going to be uh, long-term, the way things are going. I've never seen anything like it. You, you, there is a political correctness that you have to adhere to now, and if you don't, people will make it very difficult for you. Here's another example, the Babylon Bee. Now, we could have a discussion about whether the Babylon Bee is a good thing or not, right? Um, I enjoy satire, and I chuckle a lot at the Babylon Bee. The problem with the Babylon Bee, though, is that real life is getting, has gotten so bizarre that a lot of times you have to check, okay, th oh, this is a headline in the New York Times, it's not the Babylon Bee. But the New York Times thinks it's actually a good thing. The Babylon Bee thinks it's a joke. And the guy that uh, founded the Babylon Bee, his name is Seth Dillon. He's the CEO of the Christian satire outlet, the Babylon Bee, was disinvited by the college from which he graduated. Palm Beach Atlantic University, a so-called Christian college, at least used to be, from participating in a speaking event and interview at its chapel, instead changing the location to the school's library, and then he was just told, don't, don't even bother coming. Because, you know, you stand for things. Palm Beach Atlantic community members reached out to the university with concern about Dylan speaking in chapel, explained that it represents a sacred space. Quoting his assertion that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization, a Palm Beach Atlantic student said that this should be enough not to welcome Seth Dillon to our campus. Not to mention that every LGBTQ student has been disrespected and degraded by his content. So, as Seth Dillon said in response, well, cancel culture has come for me. I'm just too dangerous and divisive to be permitted to speak on the campus of my alma mater. Since when do you have to support terrorist organizations that use violence and intimidation to advance their agenda or to be welcome on a Christian campus? And people would say, there's no violence. They're not having violent protests. I mean, you can, listen, I would highly recommend get a Twitter account and follow some people on Twitter that are reporting on what's going on in Portland now for well over 100 days, consecutive days. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, the other day, people driving up the 405, which is one of the busiest freeways at the Sepulveda Pass in Los Angeles, were greeted by this along the freeway. It was, uh, so people northbound, you could even see it southbound. I saw some people taking pictures of it. Uh, it was to mimic the Hollywood sign. Well, how did Caltrans, who has responsibility for the highway, react? Well, the sign was on private property, but Caltrans workers, well, we couldn't take it down because it was on private property, so they went and they laid it down on the ground. Uh, they did not remove the sign. They said this, the Caltrans spokesperson said this. The Caltrans spokesperson is named Wonder, which makes you wonder what planet this person lives on, said this. This was a life and safety issue because there were concerns about distracted driving. It was also claimed in another report that it was considered to be a fire hazard. Now, I'm trying to think through this. It is a fire hazard if somebody firebombs it. But just sitting there, it's not a fire hazard. So I've let it play a few times now just so in case we trigger some people. This is right near the Getty Museum and beautiful area. And by the way, 
Well, you can see it from the freeway, Caltrans said. Well, you can see the Hollywood sign from the freeway if you've ever been out there. They take it, are they tearing that thing down? No. Here's a new line of attack on Amy Coney Barrett. In 2000, she helped the GOP defend mail ballots. So they're saying, well, what is so different about now? She defended mail ballots in the election controversy in Florida into the 2000 election. She was on the legal team working on that. So why, why is anybody concerned about mail-in ballots? Now listen, I talked to several people this week. One of my friends, who I trust implicitly, got his ballot, his wife's ballot, and seven others at his house. Prior owners and residences. This, I do not think we understand how corrupt this process is going to be. And we know people are going out there. I don't care what people try to say about Project Veritas and what they're doing in Minneapolis, and they're showing people buying up these ballots and the ballot harvesting, and they're trying to set up drop-off points that aren't secure. This, they're trying to steal an election. They're trying to overturn state laws that require a witness to not require a witness. So if my friend had wanted to, he could have voted nine times. Now, knowing him, his wife probably would vote the other way. Um, so, but that's, this, this is going to be something like we've never really seen before. And so now they're going to attack Amy Coney Barrett this week. I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe, they, maybe they'll do the honorable thing and just not show up. But I don't think they can help themselves. And now we see that Nancy Pelosi wants to invoke a special commission to implement the 25th Amendment to get rid of a sitting president. I don't know if she thinks she can do that with President Trump. I think she really knows in her heart she's going to have to do it with Joe Biden if he's elected. It's, it's going to be, like I said, a tumultuous 90 days. If that, and that's, I'm the, that's the optimistic John talking. Only 90 days. I think we're entering a time where things are quite different. This was an interesting article that I found at the City Lab section at Bloomberg the other day. Japan's bullet trains are hitting a speed bump. This is kind of interesting. These, these trains are some, they're approaching, they run at 280 miles an hour. There's a network of them all over Japan. They've connected the whole country. That's great. What's the problem? Japan is dying. Demographically dying. There have been a number of studies, these go back several years, and I've talked about this thing about, how, I'm not sure exactly how it plays into the end times that we talk about, but there are these demographic, you wouldn't even call them a demographic speed bump, you would call them a demographic brick wall that countries are running into where they're having declining populations. Aging populations, and then not enough children to replace them. The birth rate in China, you have to be 2.1 per adult female average uh, children. They're at 1.3 or 1.4. Countries all across Europe are below, way below two. Russia, I've seen in the non-Muslim communities in Russia is about 1.1, which means in, a, in one generation, you're half the people that you used to have. And so what's happening with the bullet trains? They can't afford them anymore because with the COVID thing, plus the aging population, there's nobody riding them. Here's what the article says. No amount of technology, however. By the way, this is unprecedented in human history. Maybe happened in a few areas, the plague in Europe and that type of thing. 
back in the Dark Ages, but I'm talking like this is happening all over the world. It, it's not taking a pandemic to reduce the populations, it's just happening naturally because people are having less children. No amount of technology, however, can withstand the disruptive tide of global pandemic, which has severely reduced travel to and within Japan. Beyond the immediate ridership and revenue hit, longer-term challenges loom. Japan's aging population is in decline. By 2065, it is projected to shrink by up to 35%, and already low birth rates are continuing to fall as young people move away from smaller towns and rural areas and concentrate in major cities like Tokyo, where birth rates are lowest. A 2014 report issued by an independent think tank offered <coughs> the dire prediction that by 2050, half of Japan's regional cities and towns would be extinct. Half of Japan's regional cities and towns would be extinct. And this is happening, and I think this affects countries like Iran, which is also has a declining population, and their desire to go to war while they still have the people that can do what they really want to do to advance their agenda. And a, a lot of people, they don't really know what to do about it. Here's a chart that, um, well, here's an article. The death of regional cities, a horrendous simulation. Regional cities will disappear by 2040. A polarized society will emerge. Look at this. What does it say here? Yeah, half of the regional towns would be extinct. And here this shows the three declining stages of population. All of them are trending down significantly. And the question is, well then, what's the impact of that? Well, how do you pay for things like healthcare? This is an article in the National Post in Canada the other day, proposed changes to MAID, pure madness. What is MAID? It's assistance in death that they are pushing on people that aren't terminal illness. They have a disability, they have a chronic illness, a painful condition. And the article, this editorial cites, it, it, look, this isn't the Christian Post or anything like this that's writing this, a secular newspaper. And they're saying, this is not good. We're, they're pushing this assisted death on people as young as 22 years old. Do the right thing and, and just and die, will you? These are things that really haven't been done. Under the proposed legislation, and based on known cases, people with a serious illness could receive a lethal injection on the same day that they received their diagnosis. And while Bill C-7 says patients need to be given information about services that could help alleviate their suffering, there is no responsibility to provide access to those services. How can we say that we are giving people freedom to choose when we are not giving access to real and timely medical assistance in, li in living? The editorial concludes with this, the message that C7 sends to those with chronic illnesses or disabilities is that their lives are not worth living and that they would be better off dead. As physicians, we fear that this system would quickly change from one that gives people a choice to die to one that coerces people to die. It's pure madness. In Canada also, this is a proposal, request for an RFP, request for proposal that was sent out regarding service providers for federal quarantine isolation sites for the government of Canada. Now, the reason is, well, it's because people have to isolate because they have the virus, they have COVID. 
Here's a little exchange in the Ontario Parliament where the opposition party is asking the majority party, hey, what's going on? This, I want you to listen to the exchange. They're talking about this RFP and similar proposal made in the province of Ontario about it. The member for Lanark, Frontenac, Kingston. Thank you, Speaker. Speaker, my question is to the Premier. In my supplemental question yesterday, I asked this government if the people of Ontario should prepare for internment camps. In September, the federal government posted a call for expressions of interest for contractors to supply, provide, and manage quarantine isolation camps throughout every province and every territory in Canada. These quarantine isolation camps, however, are not limited to people with COVID, but provide a wide latitude for many people to be detained. Surely this government is aware of the intentions to build these isolation camps from coast to coast, and my question to the Premier is, how many of these camps will be built? And how many people does this government expect to detain? Question. Government House Leader. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Uh, it is very true that when people leave the country and when they come back in, that the, uh, uh, the province is suggesting, and, uh, and the federal government, in cooperation with the federal go government, we are suggesting that people uh, isolate uh, themselves. That has been a, a practice that has been very successful, not only here in the province of Ontario, but across uh, uh, across Canada and we will of course be redoubling our efforts to make sure that uh, the people of the province of Ontario uh, remain safe Mr. S Mr. Speaker so if the member is referring to the fact that uh, uh, that one of the public health policies is that when you return from a jurisdiction outside of the province of Ontario or from another country that you isolate yourself for uh, for two weeks I would suggest uh, uh, that that has been a good uh, a good policy that has been working in fact this house has been doing the same thing since we came back we are working in cohorts to make sure that the Legislative Assembly can continue to operate. That's why we have two separate cohorts, uh, Mr. Speaker. Response. cooperation of the official opposition. That is why all members of the independents have been excluded from that cohort, because we want them to be able to participate in debate. So we will continue to do everything in our power to make sure that this okay. continues to so the, the question. people of the province of Ontario and Canada are kept safe. So here's a follow-up. Supplementary question. Again, thanks uh, to the Premier. Here's the RFP. And in the RFP, it uses clear language to express that these camps can be used for a broad spectrum of people, not limited to travelers. Indeed, it doesn't even mention inter international travelers. It's just a broad latitude of people. And I'll send over the copy of the RFP after. So your government is, must be in negotiations, negotiations and aware of these plans to potentially detain and isolate citizens and residents of our country and our province. So, Speaker, to the Premier, where will these camps be built? How many people will be detained? And for what reasons, for what reasons can people be kept in these isolation camps? And I'd like to, I'd like to have the Premier assure the people of Member, take a seat. Well, the next question. Didn't even get an answer. Sit down and be quiet. And I know there was something from the Ohio Department of Health that sounded eerily similar to this. Here's an article in the Daily Mail. World's first COVID passport technology will be trialed on flights from Heathrow this week and bid to let passengers travel without risk of quarantine in the future, but requires authorities to trust lab results around from abroad. And so this COVID pass, it comes from the um, Commons Project, which is funded by, guess who? The World Economic Forum. And we've talked a number of times about the Great Reset that they're proposing. And I think they've moved back their winter conference that they usually have in Davos at least a few months. But they still have that uh, strategic analysis form up with you know the wheel that you can click on and find out all their plans that they have.
And so here they are, they're pushing this COVID passport so people can travel. This is from the Daily Mail in the UK. Here's an article from Zero Hedge. Again, I work with commercial real estate quite a bit. And uh, what's happened is they, when people would get loans, they would make them sign certain covenants. You would do this, you would do this, you would do this, you would provide this financial reporting, this financial reporting, you wouldn't do this. And there were covenants that you had to sign and agree to. And if you violated them, the loan could be pulled. And so they started issuing, after the 2008 crisis, they started issuing what things are called covenant light. And now these deals are cratering because of the decline in commercial real estate values in many areas. It's just, it's so strange. I mean, I, you drive by these built office buildings and there's nobody there in the middle of the day. And everybody's got assigned space for lease. Well, every one of those buildings has a mortgage on it. And if people aren't paying rent, they might be paying rent now, but in the, when their lease comes up, they're going to stop paying rent because they don't need all that space. People who had 100,000 square feet of office space can now get by with 5,000. Well, what do you do with the other 95,000 square feet? Can't put restaurants in it because we don't have those that much anymore. There's a restaurant out at Easton that we liked. We thought, let's go over there. Then we'll just order, you know, take out. It's closed. Bone V. It's right in the middle of Easton. Right in smack in the middle on the circle there. It's gone. Permanently closed. It's, it's crazy. So here's what the description is this. It's a civil war between lenders, and we're going to see more of this. Nearly every company restructuring debt is looking at these possibilities that these deals are going to crater like crazy. And so now they might have multiple creditors involved and they file bankruptcy, everybody's fighting over the, the carcass of the commercial real estate. It's, it hasn't hit yet, but it's coming. It really is coming. So that's just sort of culture and economy. Jobless claims continue to be high in the U.S., although certain parts of the economy are getting back to work. But it's just, it's, I just find everything so strange as I drive around. You know, some schools meet five days a week. Some meet in the community, the school district we live in. There, I think, two days one week and three days the next week. And, but then nobody can figure, well, are you on a two-day or three-day week? Well, I don't know. I have to go check my chart. And it's, it's just all very strange. NFL football games being canceled, some college football games being played. Um, it's just, the whole thing is just, it's, it's a hot mess. It really is a hot mess. So here's some articles. Let's just look at the Middle East quickly, and we'll get out of here. Is Turkey's military overstretched? So Turkey is intervening in all of these conflicts. This is an article from Foreign Policy this week. And it seems like, and we talk about Erdogan quite a bit, and we cannot ignore Turkey in Bible prophecy because even in Ezekiel 38, 39, most of the people groups that are identified there are centered on Turkey, what is today modern Turkey. So we can't ignore this. So here's just a little map that foreign policy made up that shows all the different adventures that um, Erdogan's Turkey is currently involved in. Libya, Syria, northern Cyprus, the eastern Mediterranean, uh, Iraq, and Qatar. They're, they're all over the place, and Turkey's economy is failing, but they keep getting involved. It's like a, the crisis of the week. So right now they're involved in this battle, and that's not even numbered here. The Azerbaijan, Armenia, they don't even have a number for that one, and Turkey's involved in that one too. And people are complaining. Even Bashar Assad, the leader of Syria, is complaining. Here's what he said. Now, this, it's subtitled, 
So this one might be a little bit hard to understand, but it is in English, but they still subtitled it. So here's what he had to say about Turkey. Uh, let's be blunt uh, and uh, clear. Erdogan has supported terrorists in Syria, and he's been supporting terrorists in Libya. And uh, he was the main instigator and initiator of the recent conflict that uh, happened in, uh, that's been going on in uh, uh, Nargoni Karabakh, between Azerbaijan and, and Armenia. So uh, I would sum his uh, behavior as dangerous. Uh, for different reasons. First of all, because it reflects the Muslim Brotherhood behavior. Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist extremist group. Uh, second, because he's creating war in different areas just to distract his own public opinion in Turkey from focusing on his behavior within Turkey, inside Turkey. Uh, especially after uh, the, his scandals, scandalous relation with ISIS in Syria. Uh, and everybody knows that the ISIS used to sell Syrian oil through Turkey with the umbrella of the American Air Forces and of course the support of the Turks and the involvement of the Turks, not, not the support, the involvement mm -hmm. in selling this oil. So this is his goal and this is dangerous. So whether the international community should be aware or not, the word international community in reality is only a few countries, the great powers and rich countries. Well, anyway, that's enough. But listen, his analysis actually is, is pretty good. Um, and he knows how um, he knows how people like Erdogan operate because he's his family's done it for decades in Syria. So he's no choir boy, I guess is the way I'm saying. But he's, he's correct. But it was clear Erdogan was buying oil from ISIS. And it was the, the oil companies or the companies involved were run by Erdogan's family. Uh, it was great insider deals. Uh, and he had, it's like every week there's some kind of crisis that he wants to do. And here it is, armed drones. This is from Financial Times. Armed drones reinforce Erdogan's tough tactics. Turkey is coming to be a power in drone technology. And it's changing the face of warfare. Now there are, there's conflict in the Caucasus region, the southern Caucasus region there in Azerbaijan and Armenia. And it's very interesting that there's people that are kind of involved on both sides. And I don't know that you can just say, well, you know, the Azerbaijanis, they are, they're pro-Iranian. There's, there's a lot of geopolitical things that are going on here. I would highly recommend, uh, Seth Fransman did an interview with uh, Dalton Thomas at FAI Mission. They have an app. Uh, they're doing a series called The New Middle East. And they interviewed Seth Fransman, who writes for, works at the Jerusalem Post and writes for a number of publications. And is really one of the better I think more level-headed uh, analyst of what's going on geopolitically in the Middle East. Um, I think he's a star, I guess, in the in that area. And he and Seth makes the point that you know you just can't go well. See, Azerbaijan Muslim bad, Armenia Christian bad, or that's okay. We like that. And he also makes the point. I think it was him that made the point is. You know, listen, Azerbaijan, there's a huge Azeri population within the borders of Iran because these people groups cross borders. So you like, you have the Kurdish regions in Iran, Iraq, and Syria. You have the Azeri people that are in Azerbaijan and Iran. In fact, there's a very famous Azeri, ethnic Azeri person in the government in Iran. His name is Ayatollah Khamenei. He's a Zeri. And the reason their the conflict is over this green area, dark green area, is because that's an Armenian ethnic area. And because that's an Armenian ethnic area, the Armenians are concerned about that. And now the Azerbaijanis are trying to take it over. And it's, it's a war. It goes truce. It's also clear that there are pipelines that go near or around that area. There's even been attacks on the city of Baku over on the Caspian Sea. 
Uh, a lot of these are strategic military things. Russia is very interested. Russia has its own problems with the Caucasus region. Uh, here's an article from Seth Fransman at uh, Newsweek, how Azerbaijan's drones show what the future of war looks like. And it's true. This is, a, this is changing the way. Now, you're not going to win a war just with drones. But drone swarms, drone swarms can be very difficult to deal with, even with modern technology. You can overwhelm the systems. And so what Azerbaijan is doing, and you can see some of the things here, is that they are inflicting a lot of casualties. This is Azerbaijan video of drone attacks on Armenian uh, forces that seem to use, they use the same road because it's the only road in and out of that region to supply the Armenians, the ethnic Armenians that live there. And they just, they're, they're just destroying these things. They're like sitting ducks. And they're using, they don't even have to get a, a, you know, they have people sitting in a room someplace flying these drones. They don't even have to do this. And this is changing the warfare. It, this is a music video. Oh, this, this is what says says. Why does this matter? Drones have been around for many years, and while the U.S. has used them to carry out thousands of airstrikes, they have not won wars in Afghanistan or elsewhere. They give the operator the ability to wait over a target, conduct days of surveillance, and strike with precision when enemies present themselves. However, Israeli companies pioneered the loitering munitions Azerbaijan uses to achieve superiority on the battlefield. Israel Aerospace Industries invented the Harpy and the Harp Harup drones to work together with the Harpy detecting radar and the Harup striking at vehicles, for instance. Think of these drones like an instant air force without needing to risk, train, feed, clothe, pilots. And then there's this kind of strange, this is an Azerbaijan military put up a music video about their technology. This is bizarre. Um, so drones back there on those, those, see the drones in the boxes back there on the trucks? Okay, it's just kind of, uh, yeah, warfare is changing. We'll kill you with our music videos. Seth concludes with this, the war in the Caucasus is showing that the what the future battlefield looks like. The future includes multiple layers of drones operating together in a kind of swarm to overwhelm en enemy defenses. Air defense weapons can't usually track and neutralize dozens of drones at the same time. Iran knew, Iran knew this when it sent 25 drones and cruise missiles to attack Saudi Arabia in September 2019. That was a year ago. That seems like 10 years ago, right? Uh, Iran has helped its allies in Lebanon and Yemen increase their drone arsenals. The next generation will have to grapple with the lessons of this war in the Caucasus. And this is also, I've talked a little bit the last couple weeks about the new type of warfare that's going on. And I think this plays into Bible prophecy because it could, how are they going to fight these wars? You know, we, we know in Ezekiel 38 and 39 it says a great company and a mighty army. Well, what, what's that constitute? It's not really defined. So I think we need to consider the logistics here. And here's a summary added on to the uh, U.S. intelligence or defense strategy called Summary of the Irregular Warfare Annex to the National Defense Strategy that was just issued. And it just says, like for example, here's a article that says, our adversaries seek to undercut our global influence to greater relationships with key allies and partners and shape the global environment to their advantage without provoking a U.S. conventional response. As we reorient the department towards greater power competition, we do not have the luxury of discarding our well-honed ability to wage irregular war as we have done in the past. And so what's happening is you know, disinformation becomes a big component of this. I cited you 
this report from the Institute Study of War about Russian hybrid warfare. At the same time, here's a paper that uh, I found this, uh, somebody sent me this morning about the development of missile technology for um, Iran and the use of a supersonic missile. Here's a look at this description of this supersonic missile that Iran now claims to have developed. And I think they have it. It can be launched from submarine ships or land. Maximum speed is 2,300 miles per hour. Uh, it costs about 2.75 million US dollars to make one. Pretty Traveling at speeds of Mach 2.8 to 3.0, it is the world's fastest cruise missile. Since it's a maiden success, uh, successful test firing conducted on June 12, 2001, Ramos has undergone a record number of over 70 flight tests to date from land, sea, sea, land, sea subsea, and air platforms, thereby validating its multifarious cap capability to completely annihilate high-value ground and sea-based targets with ultimate speed, pinpoint accuracy, and devastating firepower in all weather conditions by day or night. One of its special features is the ability to fly extremely close to the ground to avoid missile defense systems. In fact, during the terminal phase, the missile can fly as low as 10 meters to the ground. In the final phase, the missile relies on an active radar seeker or internal or inertial guidance. Not good. This is a comment. I'm just going to read this. You can draw your own conclusions. Seth posted this on his Facebook page the other day. Now we talk a lot about Turkey, Iran, and all these different countries coming against Israel, right? So Seth lives in Israel, lives in Jerusalem. Says this, within 10 years, Turkey, if its current regime is in charge, will seek to attack Israel. Israel should be wary of thinking the attacks on Afrin, Libya, Armenia, Sinjar, and use of extremists as a foreign legion and rapid militarization of Turkey as almost all opposition politicians are in prison is anything to be taken for granted. Ankara has vowed to liberate Jerusalem and has hosted Hamas. It uses an active collaborationist lobby in D.C. to push its policies and blackmails NATO and the EU. By why? They threatened to release Syrian refugees by the millions. This country, the country's military industrial complex is expanding. It may be more dangerous than Iran because it is investing massively in extremist religious nationalism while Iran's regime is ossifying and not supported by the people. Turkey's attacks on minorities are like the fascist states of the 1920s and 30s and Ankara's impunity to invade and even threaten the U.S. and seemingly control the White House uh, if it, it even openly attacks U.S. democracy, protesters, and aims to stop Biden and Pelosi from critique of it. And you remember there was a protest going on against Erdogan outside the White House. The White House, you know the one in Washington, D.C., where our president lives? And what happened? Erdogan's security people beat him up right by the fence of the White House. He has no... Com he has no compunction to do anything. He completely decimated his military leadership so he could Islamicize it. The military used to be secular by law, and he changed it. He put everybody in prison. Here's a recent, um, and then he also says this, the regime has provoked new wars every month and will continue to do so and, and will attack Israel. I guarantee you this will happen. Israel's front line today is, is much is as much needing to be concerned about Iran's role in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon as to be concerned about Turkey in the eastern Mediterranean, the S-400s, Afrin, and other places. Don't think Turkey is against Iran. Turkey and Iran collaborate and both want to liberate Jerusalem, and Ankara says, Jerusalem is ours. I played you that clip last week, and here is a picture making the round on Turkish social media. Lines up perfectly with what the Bible says will happen. And it may not be Erdogan, it may be somebody that replaces him that's worse. It's uh, 
been watching Erdogan in Turkey for a long time. Uh, so Netanyahu, Netanyahu and Putin discussed Iran's aggression and the situation in Syria in a call the other day. This also has been making the press rounds that uh, Hamas leadership meets with Bahrain um, to coordinate against peace with Israel. And so here's a good editorial cartoon. Well, here's another thing that uh, Erdogan did. He opened a beach in northern Cyprus. So what? Big deal, right? This beach has been closed since 1974. Now, he says, I'm not going to reinstate the uh, ghost town that's developed there. Turkey took over that region in between 1970 and 1974. This beach was closed, but now there's beach on the Mediterranean. All of a sudden, Erdogan's opening it to the public. Why? Because he wants to make these claims on the maritime part, the, on the ocean part of the, of, of the uh, Mediterranean and cause problems. And this is an editorial from this morning's Arab News. Is Erdogan really teetering on the cliff? I don't know. A couple other things I want. I have three things. Well, actually, I have a few things to go over here. This is kind of interesting. Okay, here is uh, Baby Kim, the leader of North Korea, um, back from his most recent bout with death and complete disability at the parade that they, they banned all foreign people there and then they put up pictures all over social media, including uh, this bad boy, a liquid-fueled rocket booster on a mobile 11-axle truck. And the U.S. defense people that are watching this, they're immediately, they're tweeting and all this stuff like, okay, that's like the biggest one of those in the world. And we thought, you know, they were under control. So, and then there's just all their military hardware is there. And people have noted, Kim looks pretty good for a guy who died a few weeks ago. Uh, if that's him. I happen to think that it is, uh, and he's out and about now. 75th anniversary of the founding of the party that led to the takeover of North Korea. All this stuff seems to be happening at the same time. Uh, but that is a massive piece of equipment. So here is... Um, this week, Prince Bandar, and I won't try to get his full name, gave an interview on Al-Arabiya. I would highly recommend, it's about an hour and, there's three parts, probably runs about an hour and a half. If you have the time, maybe two hours, I would recommend that you at least go through it. It's, it's in Arabic, but it's, it's subtitled in English. And he has come out, this is kind of interesting with the Abraham Accords. The question is, which way is Saudi Arabia going to go? Are they going to join in? What, and how are they doing with the Palestinians? And I will tell you, this guy lays it out, and he just says, the Palestinians are, well, he says here, this is from this morning's Arab News, what has come to light are not just the blunders of Palestinian leaders through the decades, but also their dilly-dallying, the cumulative impact of which has cost their people dear and set back their statehood cause. What perhaps counts in favor of the present Palestinian leadership is that the reason why Prince Bandar decided to make these crucial revelations was their loud condemnations of the U.S.-UAE-Israeli trilateral declaration in August. And in this interview, um, Prince Bandar says, listen, he was, that's, by the way, Six foot eight King Saud in the background, the founder of Saudi Arabia. And he just says, he comes out and he says, I, I can't believe I heard the Palestinians complaining about us or running us down. I couldn't believe it. And he, he, said, he goes on to say, I got angry. I couldn't believe it. I even saw it with my own eyes on TV 
and the Palestinian leadership. Here are clips that they're playing on Al Arabiya, showing that you know this is Palestinian condemnation of the Saudis and other Arabs. And Bandar is saying is, hold on a minute here. I think this is a this is this has really captured the space, the geopolitical space in the Middle East right now. That he would actually come out and say this about the Arabs, the Palestinians. Um, he was angry. And he goes on to say, this is in the last part of his thing, he goes, we can see what's going on. Neither the Egyptian people nor the people of the Gulf and many Arab nations are pleased with what we see. Turkey occupies Libya and wants to liberate Jerusalem by withdrawing its ambassador from Abu Dhabi. Iran wants to liberate Jerusalem through the Houthis in Yemen and through Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria. Sounds like he's read Ezekiel 38. Things are clear. And we are at our limit with those guys. And now I have conveyed what was in my heart. And spoken directly to the audience that concerns me and to our citizens. Everything that I said is documented and known. And I'm going to start a social media account, Twitter, etc. And I will post all these documents. And everything I talked about on this account in this interview. Anyone who wants more details can find them there. Otherwise, I could spend 10 hours telling you all the details, which I will not do. I hope and ask God Almighty that I have faithfully fulfilled my obligation so that we do not allow liars, cheaters, those who are disloyal, and who deny what was done for them to impose their traditions and their way of dealing with each other on us. We also have our own history, and we know it, and we know theirs. And this is what I wanted to explain to my fellow citizens. given the crucial importance of this stage and the circumstances we are experiencing now. And Allah is the grantor of success. Thank you for giving me the time to talk about this with you. And it goes through, it's interlaced with these clips of him at the White House and the Oslo Accords and Bill and Hillary Clinton and all these things happening. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very well done piece with subtitles. Well, the response of the Palestinians was, okay, um, we're not going to chair the Arab League. We'll show them. Uh, that's kind of a stunner, too. Uh, and at the same time that this is going on, Europe is saying Palestinians are not taking tax money they should get from Israel, which is caught, their, their revenue is down to like 15% of what it was. They, they don't have money. The Arabs aren't sending them, the Arab Gulf states aren't sending them money anymore because of pressure from the United States. They have tax money. They say, well, we don't want it from Israel. It's dirty money. And the EU comes out and says, listen, if you don't take the money, don't come and ask us for a dime. The EU even said that. This is a huge geopolitical, this is almost like a 7.1 earthquake, I think. At the same time, even Emmanuel Macron came out and talked about, well, here's what he says. There should be sound. Well, anyway, here's what it's he a said. It's conscious theoretical socio-political project. It's repeatedly at odds with the values of the Republic and often leads to the creation of a counter-society. So what he's talking about is Islam is causing separate enclaves in our society and we're not going to tolerate it anymore. Now he may be tacking to the right because he's got an election coming up I think next year. So I know, let me just finish with one thing. I talked about wokeness and everything 
Um, Brett Stevens at the um, New York Times kind of redeemed himself a little bit coming out against the 1619 Chronicles and how the New York Times has done a bad job of dealing with that. But there was one article this week that I thought was important. And I talked about this critical race theory and stuff at, uh, in the first hour in the context of James chapter 2. But here's an editorial this week from the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper, about two professors that were saying things on the campus. I'll just read part of it, okay? Harvard does not care about his students of, of color. They're talking about David Kane, who invited Charles Murray, uh, and also another uh, instructor there. And they're saying, listen, this is just terrible what they've done. Here's what he says. This semester, Harvard is also employs Diana Schaub, who has a history of controversial beliefs as a visiting professor in the government department. In one essay, listen to what she's done. This is, so, this is how horrible this person is. Shom states that the decline of black people in professional baseball is due to the absence of fathers in the black community. That's documented. In another, Shab argues that the contemporary phenomenon of angry middle class blacks derives in substantial part from the erosion of both Bible-based faith and faith in progress. And in another, she argued Baltimore's declining population is due to a low marriage rate and high abortion rate, particularly among African Americans. These essays are, if not outright bigoted, ignorant, and deeply concerning. Experiencing both Shobbs and Kane's class at the same time is exhausting for me as a student. To read excerpts of Shobbs' belief makes me feel as though I have been betrayed. Professors are trusted to represent the material they cover with sincerity. In other words, don't hurt my feelings by telling me the truth. Sincerity means you make me feel better. But in this case, it feels as though I've been lied to and exploited by someone in a trusted authoritative position. And Harvard allowed this to happen. Harvard put these instructors in positions where they could disguise and push their own beliefs under the veil of academic pursuit. A stunning editorial that shows that Harvard was a religious institution when it was founded. So what Harvard must do now is simple, fire Kane and Schaub and any other faculty member with similar unacceptable views. Cancel them. Then establish a proper, proper vetting system that prevents the hiring of others like them. No more lengthy emails and empty promises. No more half-hearted measures. The voices of students cannot be ignored any longer it is time they are finally heard. Well, Harvard has so much money, student loans are a problem. Do you know that only 11% of student loans right now are being paid back in the U.S.? Seems like it's a racket. So look, folks, this is, uh, this is just a small sampling of the, of the things that I read about this week. We live, this, stand by what my title is, this is a hot mess. And look, God's in control, and he'll, we need to act and do things to glorify him. And it might be uncomfortable, but we need to do that. So let's pray, we'll talk next week. Father, thank you so much for your grace that saved us, we pray that you will give us opportunities to share the real gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus on the cross with those around us and protect us from the false gospels that are banging, not only banging on the doors of the church, but have entered the church in many cases. Keep us faithful to Jesus and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.